0: This is our American stories, and from 1955 to 1975, to Helen Back, the true life story of America's most decorated soldier of World War II, Audie Murphy. Was Universal Studios' highest earning motion picture. That is, until a 27 year old unknown writer director named Steven Spielberg signed on to a movie based on Peter Benchley's best selling novel titled Jaws. And today, on this day in history, that movie opened in 1975. Here's Steven Spielberg and author screenwriter Peter Benchley.
1: When I first hear the word JAWS, you know, I just think of a period in my life uh, when I was much younger than I am right now. And I think because I was younger, I was more courageous or I was more stupid. I'm not sure which. So when I think of JAWS, I think about courage and stupidity. And I think of both of those things existing underwater. <laughs>
2: I had been thinking for years about a story about a shark that attacks people and what would happen if it came in and wouldn't go away and and I hadn't done anything with it really. And then in 1964 I read a story about a shark fisherman off Long Island who caught a 4550 pound great white shark off the beaches of Long Island and I thought, wow, what would happen if one of these things came in and wouldn't go away. And again, I didn't do anything about it until 1970 or 71 when a publisher finally said, that's an interesting story. I'll pay you a couple of dollars if you'll put it on paper. So that's how the idea began.
0: Here's Jaws producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown after reading the novel.
3: We both read it overnight, got on the phone with each other the next morning and uh, said, look, we don't know how we can possibly do it, but we decided we, we must have this. Whatever it takes, this is the most exciting thing we've ever read, and we'll figure out later how, to, how we can make it.
4: Had we read it twice, in my opinion, we never would have made Jaws, because anybody with a modicum of production knowledge would know there was no way to get a shark to leap on the stern of a small boat and swallow a man. How are we going to do this? Were we going to do it in animation? Who was going to do
0: this? Here's Spielberg on his writing team, and one of the most memorable scenes
1: in Jaws. Peter Bench did a very good adaptation of his own novel. And then Peter kind of turned it over to me and said, here it is, and do with it what you want. And at that point, I didn't quite know what to do with it because it wasn't the movie I wanted to make next. And I remember sitting down and writing the script myself and doing an entire draft myself from beginning to end. It was more of an exercise for me to become familiar with what I wanted Jaws to become and it was an exercise that was very beneficial because I suddenly had a vision of the film even though I didn't possess the skills to write it and David Brown suggested and Dick Zanik both suggested that I go to Howard Sackler who had written The Great White Hope Howard Sackler
4: specifically asked not to have credit he only had a limited time to give to the
1: film and therefore he said I don't want credit Sackler really broke the back of the movie and got me to say, yes, I'll make this movie next. I'm committing.
5: Tohupa, <laughs> that's
1: the USS Indianapolis.
6: you on the Indianapolis?
1: The Indianapolis speech, which for me is my favorite part of Jaws, the this, this speech that Shaw gives about that, um, that was conceived by Howard Sackler who only really wrote a short paragraph. And one day I was talking to John Milius and I said, could you make this longer? Because I think it's a speech, not just a couple of short paragraphs. 1,100
6: men went into the water. A vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour.
1: And so John sat down and he wrote page after page, in longhand, I believe, when Robert Shaw read it, Shaw said, let me have a chance of rewriting it. So and then Shaw rewrote Milius, who had rewritten Sackler, and the speech in the movie is uh, basically Shaw's version of Milius' version of Sackler's version.
5: You know the thing about
6: a shark? He's got lifeless eyes,
7: black eyes, like a doll's eyes.
6: And when he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you and those black eyes roll over white, and then, oh, then you hear that terrible
5: high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of
6: all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, and they rip you to pieces.
0: The legendary English actor Robert Shaw was cast as the unforgettable shark hunter Quint. Here's Spielberg uncasting Richard Dreyfus, as oceanographer Matt Hooper.
1: I cast Dreyfus basically because I, I loved American Graffiti, and I had seen him in that, and George Lucas was the person who sort of said to me, why don't you cast Ricky, Ricky Dreyfus? He'd be great.
7: And he told me this movie that he wanted to make, and it was really a, a shocker. I mean, even as he was telling it to me as a tale, it was a great, exciting story. And I said, well, this, this sounds like it's going to be a great movie. I'd rather watch this movie than shoot it, because it's going to be a bitch to shoot. Then a few months later, I went to see the opening of a film that I had done in Canada called The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz. And I saw myself, really, for the first time. And I had a heart attack. I had a total nervous collapse. I thought I was awful. And I, I figured that I'd better get a job really soon. So I called Stephen, and I said, If you still want to offer me that job, I'll take it. He said, yes. So in essence, I came crawling to Martha's Vineyard for the part.
0: And is Richard Dreyfus glad he crawled back? And when we come back, more on Jaws on This Day in History. It debuted in 1975. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to study all of the fine and beautiful things in life, the Constitution, philosophy, art, everything and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you go to hillsdale.edu and take their terrific and free online courses when we come back the rest of the story of Jaws it debuted on this day in history in 1975 And we continue with our story on the debut of Jaws on this day in history in 1975. In movie making, casting a location is just as important as casting the right actor.
3: When it came down to where we would shoot this film, uh, we sent Joe Alves, our production designer, out with a team to give us some ideas and some photographs and pictures of where this town should be shot and one of the places was the island of Martha's Vineyard, which, believe it or not, had never been photographed by a feature film before. They had very strict rules and regulations there.
4: Martha's Vineyard didn't particularly care for a movie invasion. They didn't like to see an artificial shark parked in a channel where their homes
1: faced it. The real attraction of Martha's Vineyard, you couldn't see with the naked eye. It was the fact that it was the only place on the East Coast where I could go 12 miles out to sea and still have a sandy bottom only 30 feet below the surface of the water where we could put the sharks fled and where the mechanical shark could could, could function. It's very important that no matter what direction my cameras turned, I didn't want to see land. My fear was the minute the audience saw land, they'd say, look, this is getting pretty intense out here. Just turn the boat around and go toward that land that we keep seeing in your movie. I wanted the audience to feel very cut off, like they couldn't just run back to shore because there was no shore to run back to.
0: Like a Hitchcock thriller, much of the horror in Jaws is left to the imagination. Most notably, the opening scene where the girl is swimming at dawn. Here again is Spielberg.
1: Because even in the book, the book does describe the shark before you see the attack. I thought that what could really be scary was not seeing the shark and just seeing the water because we all are familiar with the water. Very few of us have been in the water with a shark. But we've all gone swimming. And the idea of this girl going swimming and the audience going swimming with her would have been too extraordinary if, like a Leviathan, the shark had come out of the water with its jaws agape and come down on her. And it would have been a spectacular opening for the film, but there would have been nothing primal about it, it would just have been a, a monster moment that we've all seen. And I really wanted to do it without seeing the shark in that in that case, and I wanted the violent jerking motions to just start to trigger our imaginations into either thinking about what's happening below the surface of the water line or blocking what was happening below the surface.
4: <laughs> the first jerk down Stephen did. He had a cable that came to the front of my stomach and went to a anchor that was laying on the bottom of the ocean. And then he just sat, and when he wanted that pull, he just would pull. He wanted to put me on an electric winch, and I wanted to have more control, so we used manpower. They put cutoff Levi's on and had cables running from me out to the side to two pilings, and then all the way into the beach. And what they would do is we'd put marks on the beach and the guys, we'd have five or six guys on each line and they would run back and forth from mark to mark. So I didn't have the hard work to do. I just kind of sat there and got pulled around. The guys were running back and forth on the beach.
7: For some reason or other, they both went the same time and they broke some ribs. And she screamed. And when she screamed, she went underwater. <laughs> And then she started saying, "Please, God, dear God," like that. And the water was rolling in her mouth, and the word "God" would come out every once in a while. Help me! Help me! She was hurting. I mean, absolutely hurting. I thought she was dying. I was watching it being filmed, and it was so real. No! And we went with the one that really hurt her, and that's the one that's in the picture.
0: And then there's the shark, or as they say, the star of the film. Here's members of the Jaws production team on their star. A bunch of us young punks went to this hangar where they built the shark. Stephen had been taught how to turn on the hydraulic thing so the mouth would open and close. I remember George Lucas crawled into the mouth of this thing. I was looking at these feet sticking out of the mouth, and I said, the relationship of him to that shark is the same as me to a taco. You know, I mean, this thing is going to eat all of you. It ain't going to get your leg. It's going to get you.
3: But of course, then we broke it. We broke the damn thing. And we all ran out of there like little kids. After a couple of months, we had a frame, we had a skin on, uh, and an unpainted shark. And we, we had it in the parking lot, and it wiggled. And we said, great, you know, let's go to the vineyard and make a movie. Most of the hydraulic valves on the shark were powered by electric solenoids and they got the whole thing put together and when they dumped it in the water, everything fried. And so Stephen had to start shooting everything but shark.
7: Guys, we can't shoot right now, hold on.
3: Every day you come in from shooting, how's the shark, how are they coming, did they try it? You know, And they would try it and it'd break down. Every day the
7: sharks would be tested and every day the jaw would go oh, oh, or the eyes would pop out.
1: That's a much maligned shark and I'm kind of responsible for creating the, a lot of the bad mouthing about the shark because the shark was frustrating it, it didn't really work all the time it didn't work hardly at all hence the wonderful and classic
4: beginning of jaws in which no shark is seen but a woman is drawn down into the waters and there came the terror
0: we've learned from the two movies rocky and goodfellas the importance that that cam played in both movie successes jaws took the concept of the steady cam and put it on water here's spielberg and his crew
1: I really wanted this movie to be just at water level, the way we are when we're treading water. We don't see water three feet off the water. We see water
3: like this. By holding the camera next to the water, just hand-holding it in a water box, which I had made specially for this picture. Panavision built it for me. And then I designed and built rafts so that we could work this water box right at water level. And this has a... A psychology about it that makes you subconsciously aware that right below the surface
2: of that water could be that shark.
0: Without great sound and music there's no such thing as a great picture. Here's the crew, including music composer of Jaws, John Williams, talking about the movie's iconic sound.
7: We needed something that everybody could say, that's a shark. We took a large uh, coke bottle and we shook it up real good, threw it out on the cement and it goes Shh. Put that and a zipper and a little bit of water and you've got the shark coming out
4: We showed the film to our financiers at Universal Picture in a rough cut without the music I had to turn around and say, what do you think? And the response from one of the executives was, it's okay, that was about it. Johnny Williams' score was not in there. The shark should be
3: represented by something in sound or in music, probably music, because there's no sound underneath the water. I expected to hear something kind of
1: weird and melodic, you know, and kind of tonal but eerie and but I thought maybe some kind of driving thing in the bottom of the orchestra might indicate the mindless attack of the shark. Bum, 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 bum. And what he played me instead with two fingers on the lower keys was, dun, dun, dun,
4: dun, 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 dun. dun. And Stephen said, is that all?
1: And Johnny said, yeah, that's
4: it.
6: One could alter the speed of this ostinato. It could be note, note. Note, note any kind of alteration of speed to to very slow, very fast, very soft, very loud. All these things could manipulate the the moment. That combination of sound and and uh, image forming a memory,
1: which can then be referred back to. And without that score, to this day, I believe the film would have only been half as successful.
0: Once Jaws hit the big screen, it did for ocean swimming what Psycho did for taking a shower. Jaws is now considered one of the greatest films ever made. It was the prototypical summer blockbuster, with its release regarded as a watershed moment in motion picture history. Because of it, today, there's a battle every summer to see who will become this summer's blockbuster motion picture. Jaws became the highest-grossing film of all time until the release of Star Wars... With a $9 million budget, it grossed $471 million at the box office. Jaws won three Academy Awards for Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, and Best Sound. It was also nominated for Best Picture, losing to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Spielberg greatly resented the fact that he was not nominated for Best Director. Along with Star Wars, Jaws was pivotal in establishing the modern Hollywood business model which revolves around high box office returns from action and adventure pictures with simple, high-concept premises that are released during the summer in thousands of theaters and supported by heavy advertising. Jaws was followed by three sequels, none with the participation of Spielberg, and there were many imitative thrillers thereafter. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This day in history, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College And in 1975, Jaws made its debut. We continue with our American stories, and one of the things we do on this show is focus on American innovation and ingenuity. And here's one story that highlights the kind of value American manufacturers offer the world during times of peace and times of war. It's not a truck. It's not a car. It's a Jeep. And here's Sarah Moore to bring us the story.
8: Go anywhere, do anything. This is the battle cry of America's most heroic 4x4 civilian vehicle. The legend of this vehicle began on the brink of war. It was originally known as the Willys MB, or the 4 GPW, but soon after its production and use earned the affectionate nickname from American soldiers as the Jeep. It was developed by American automotive engineer Delmar Barney-Ruse. This first make featured the Willys' go-devil engine. Writer Doug Stewart noted that this vehicle was a four-wheeled personification of Yankee ingenuity and cocky can-do determination. And that's because the Jeep became the primary light-wheeled transport vehicle of the U.S. military and its allies in World War II. President Eisenhower once called it one of three decisive weapons the U.S. had during the Second World War. It was also the world's first mass-produced four-wheel drive car, manufactured in six-figure numbers. About 640,000 units were built, constituting a quarter of the total U.S. non-combat motor vehicles produced during the war. Large numbers of Jeeps were also shipped to the Allied forces nearly 30% of total jeep production. Some 80,000 jeeps were provided to Russia alone during the war. And that's more than Nazi Germany's total war production of their jeep counterparts, the Volkswagen Kubelwagen and the Schwimmwagen combined. Horses, bikes, and sidecars had all become obsolete in this new age of warfare. And the U.S. Army had asked for help. American manufacturing was set to deliver. The first model, with 60 horsepower and 105 foot-pounds of torque, not only exceeded the Army's requirement, but dwarfed the Bantams 83 and Ford's 85 pound-feet of torque. It's only competitors for the military contract. Willys produced over 300,000 MB vehicles in the first year. The jeep was so versatile that it was used by every single division of the American military. That's 144 jeeps provided to every infantry regiment. George Marshall, U.S. Army Chief of Staff during the Second World War, and later U.S. Secretary of State, described the jeep 4x4 as America's greatest contribution to modern warfare. World War II reporter Ernie Pyle once said, It did everything. It went everywhere. Was as faithful as a dog, strong as a mule, and as agile as a goat. It constantly carried twice what it was designed for and still kept going. One Jeep was even awarded a Purple Heart and sent home. The Jeep's name was Old Faithful and it was retired on Bougainville, recently after having traveled more than 11,000 miles of jungle terrain as a command car. During its 18 months service, Old Faithful served four Marine generals, as well as carrying every ranking Marine officer and visiting official on the two battle-torn islands. But the Jeep had been awarded a Purple Heart for holes in its windshield received during the Japanese battleship shelling of Guadalcanal on October 13, 1942. Today, it remains a true war relic.
1: For a 75th anniversary, any car company can tell you about the milestones they've reached. But only one can tell you about Old Faithful, the jeep that stormed the beaches of Guadalcanal, and the grateful soldiers who fought by its side that put it up for a Purple Heart.
8: Without the Jeep, there's a good chance the Allies would not have won the Second World War. Even in its first five years of existence, there were a number of distinct models for different military uses. The first Jeep model was called a Quad. the quad was the father of the MB, CJ series, and Wrangler, all used in the war. MBs could be loaded into transport aircraft for rapid deployment and were also small enough to fit into the large gliders used in the D-Day invasion of Europe. Over the course of the war, customized field kits were developed for winter and desert conditions, deep water fording, and other combat needs. But because it was so versatile, it wasn't just for war. The Jeep was also for peace. After World War II ended in 1945, the first civilian model was launched, making it the first official American SUV. The thing was a piece of art. It made heroes of entrymen, but it was also a workhorse. In fact, outside of combat production, Willie's MB hoped to put literal farm workhorses out of a job. According to research done at Willie's, there were 5.5 million farmers in the U.S., and of these, more than 4 million had neither truck nor tractor. The rugged and versatile CJ2A was marketed by Willie's as the all-round farm workhorse. It could do the job of two heavy draft horses, operating at a speed of 4 miles per hour, 10 hours a day, without overheating the engine. The CJ-2A universal, as it was called, was to serve agriculture and industry all over the world in a thousand different ways. But back to war. In 1950 and 1951, the M38 military model was launched for specific use in the Korean War. Talk about ahead of its time, the M38 had a waterproof ignition system. During that conflict, Willie redesigned the M38 and it became the M38A1 with a longer wheelbase, softer ride, a more powerful engine, and a new, more rounded body style. In production through 1962, Willie's also produced the M170, which was designed to be fitted with several different body packages. But because passengers were somewhat enclosed compared to earlier models, the M170 was also used as a field ambulance. This model of Jeep was more agile and efficient than a tank, and they could also be fitted with 30 or 50 caliber machine guns for combat. They were widely modified for long-range desert patrol, snow plowing, telephone cabling, saw milling, as well as firefighting pumpers, field ambulances, tractors, and with suitable wheels, they could even run on railway tracks. The demand on the Jeeps for both civilian and military use, led to constant improvement and in ingenuity in the American economy. The model may change, but the Jeep is an American icon.
0: And what a story this is. I mean, when a five-star like George Marshall says that the Jeep was America's greatest contribution to warfare. That's, well, that's not hyperbole. And I love what Ernie Pyle said about the Jeep. It did everything. 640,000 units, folks. And my goodness, 80,000 to the Russians alone to help, to help fight off the Nazis on the Eastern Front. And we couldn't have won the war, as everyone knows, without Russian help. When we come back, more on the life of the Jeep, this great American product, company, innovation, and war machine, here on Our American Stories. with our american stories and we're about to hear more on the next stages in the evolution of america's jeep and the national pride that it affirms and instills in the lives of so many americans there's one family in particular we'll hear from on their love for the jeep and its powerful symbolism of the true rugged and adventurous american spirit in their lives let's return to sarah moore
8: most people don't know that Jeep also brought America's first completely steel station wagon to the scene. The woody look, as it was called, was Willie's wagon, and the wagon's fold-down tailgate hatch can be credited with the origin of the tailgate party. Most station wagons of the day could carry four-by-four sheets of plywood horizontally, but only Willie's could store them vertically as well. A washout interior could be cleaned almost as easily as a kitchen sink, one of the ads stated in October of 1950. When four-wheel drive was added in 1943, the Willys wagon became the frontrunner of the Grand Cherokee. The Brooks-Stevens-designed wagon was in production nearly 20 years, longer than any other contemporary American automobile of its day. Now today, these early Jeep models are collector's items. Mark A. Smith is one of those collectors. He helped popularize Jeeps as recreational vehicles and historic artifacts. Besides test-driving Jeep prototypes on the Rubicon Trail for Chrysler, he conducted training for law enforcement agencies and U.S. military special forces, and he also designed driving courses for off-road testing.
6: I purchased my first, which is a World War II surplus for $500, and heard about the Rubicon Trail, and with another friend that had one, we made a trip over the trail. Very impressed with the capabilities of the Jeep vehicle. The first is a 1952 Willie CJ2A. The interesting thing about this one, it's got 43,000 original miles. My first was at 52, just exactly like that. The total price was $1,752, including license and tax delivered. The next is a World War II uh, willies built to Marine Corps specifications with ring hooks for loading aboard ship and a very unusual service manual on the inside of the hood. The one directly behind me is the Bantam, which goes back, it was one of the first prototypes delivered to the military. To World War II, the Army put out requests for bids on light reconnaissance type vehicles, and there were only three manufacturers that responded, and each one of them were given a contract to build 1,500 of them. This is one of the early 1,500, totally restored. I have the Willys MA1, which is one of the pre-World War IIs, and it has a history. It was sunk in a landing craft at Saipan. A Navy supply ship happened to spot it while they were anchored there. They sent divers down, recovered it, cleaned it up, got the salt water out of it and put it aboard their supply ship for the rest of the war. When the war ended, two sailors from El Dorado County uh, happened to be in that one, when going on liberty, and it was never returned to the supply ship. We have possession of that one now. The one with the machine guns is uh, copied after the British Special Air Services, which were a terrific harassment to Rommel during World War II. There were about 80 of these that were outfitted for desert warfare. And uh, one morning in 1942, I believe it was three or four of them hit this German airfield in Africa, charging up and down the runway, blew up something like 32 German twin-engine bombers, including one that was just landing. Then they scoot off in the desert. And something rather interesting, if you notice the color on it, it's pink. And I was told by a member, former member of British SAS Special Air Services, that they would paint them with pink paint. And then while the paint was still wet, they would throw sand on them to get the dull desert look. Because the way they would attack be early in the morning with the sun behind their back, there were no windshields, there was nothing on them to give any glare. They would be gone on missions for three to five days, so they had to carry food, ammunition, and water for that period of time. And if you noticed on the front, there's a little unit that would save condensed water because water was so scarce in the desert. I have a 1947 Willie CJ-2A fire engine, but rather interesting unit. It only has 7,300 miles on it. I bought it sight unseen on the east coast of massachusetts and uh as i understand it the factory would of course send it to the manufacturing company that made the fire units they would put them on and return them with the factory then the factory would sell these to dealers they have my cj7 that i did the expedition with it's a stock factory vehicle the only thing we put on there was anything different to get through the jungles a little bit bigger tires and of course we had Ramsey winches on them. We did have bridging ladders. Without the ladders we would have been a good extra 30 days in the jungle. When we were doing the Darien Gap trip we were prepared to take 90 days to go through the jungle. We were able to do it because of the expertise of our crew and experienced four-wheelers. We were able to go through in 30 days. I also have a 1950 Willys Jeepster in mint condition. Very beautiful, sporty little vehicle. It's more of a classic than a off-road vehicle, but it was one of those that Willys. I believe they made them for three years.
8: Mark created the sport of jeeping, and he himself was a marine in World War II.
9: Well, I'm Jill Smith, and I am Mark Smith's daughter. And I'm currently the president and CEO of Jeep Jamboree USA, Mark Smith Offroad Incorporated. And I grew up on the Rubicon Trail.
6: We did the Rubicon Trail, and we felt that this could be a, a trip that would help the economy of our area. So we started Jeep Jamborees, which was started in 1953. In uh, 1954, Willie's Jeep, joined us on the trip, and ever since that time, Jeep has been a part of the Rubicon Trail.
9: I got my driver's license when I was 16, and in June. And I remember Dad saying, you're driving the Rubicon, you're driving the Jeepers Jamboree this year. And I said, Dad, I just got my license. And he said, you're driving it this year. And so I knew that was not an option to do anything other than drive that trail. He said, if you make it to Spider Lake, I'll fly you in by helicopter from there. And uh, I was having so much fun by the time I hit Spider Lake that I ended up driving the whole trail.
5: Right.
6: We uh, were contacted in 1992 by Special Forces U.S. Army to do off-road training to teach them some of the things that I had done and uh, set up a training program for them bringing them in here on the Rubicon. It turned out to be Delta Force and uh, they uh, they still do come and do the same type of training that we did and occasionally are still running the Rubicon.
9: My father has been the greatest influence on my life. I. My adventurous spirit comes from my father, my independence comes from my father.
6: We're recording this, I hope.
9: (laughs) My love of the world and travel and adventure and my sense of freedom and fearlessness comes from my father.
6: I think all of the Jamborees, they've been good. There's something new and different you see every year. Expansion of Rubicon Springs. And the one thing, of course, at this point, we own and basically control half of the Rubicon Trail plus Rubicon Springs. It will always be open to the public. There's a certain camaraderie between Jeep owners and once you're a Jeep owner, a true Jeep owner, you always are.
8: To this day, the Jeep remains an icon of strength and innovation. And times change, but icons are forever. It's a Jeep
0: thing. And great work by Sarah Moore. And what a story. Mark Smith, by the way, did continue four-wheeling until he passed away, and that was on June 9, 2014. But his legacy remains just like the legacy of the historic four-wheeler he so deeply loved. And by the way, it remains in his daughter, Jill. And what words to hear as a father, my goodness. And you could hear the dad interrupting her uh, when the audio was playing earlier. But she said, my greatest influence in my life was my dad. My adventurous spirit came from my father. My independence comes from my father. My love of the world and travel and my sense of freedom and fearlessness come from my father. And there isn't a dad in this country. Who wouldn't love to hear his daughter saying those words? And by the way, the Rubicon Trail was originally a Native American footpath. The Rubicon Trail was used by explorers in search of a clear path across the Sierra Nevada. And today, well, Jeep owners call it their own. The story of the Jeep, the story of Mark Smith and his daughter, here on Our American Story.
6: Once upon a time there was an engineer, choo-choo Charlie was his name we hear. He
7: had an engine and he sure had fun, he's good and plenty candy to make his train run.
5: Charlie says, love my good and plenty, Charlie says, really rings the bell, Charlie says.
0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And you were listening to the, uh, Good and Plenty theme song. That was my favorite snack. My parents would give it to me at the end of the week when I'd been a good boy. And I loved that song, and I loved the soft Good and Plenty. I hated the hard ones. I hated the old ones. I loved the fresh ones. And, well, today's piece is from Heidi Mitchell. And by the way, we had a great segment with her on tickling last week. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look up the tickling segment. It was fabulous. And, well, she had the burning question column, and last week she was on with us about that tickling. This week, her latest piece of art, which foods make the best bedtime snack? And uh, for me, it was always good and plenty. Uh, that's what I love to eat right before I went to bed. It's what I love to eat any time of the day, frankly. <laughs> Heidi, is this really a burning question? That's what we want to know.
10: Uh, well, my burning question is, is licorice genetically loved or disloved? Because
9: mm. I, don't,
10: I could never eat those good and plenties. But yes, my, my late night snack is ice cream, as I'm sure many Americans are.
0: Oh, you still good doing one. good and plenties? That's a good Oh, I still. I, I Yes, my wife. I have a stash all over the house. Anytime is good. Anytime <laughs> is good. It's just my, you know, Ronald Reagan, as you know, it was jelly beans all the time. He had them everywhere near him so that was his favorite right. snack not just bedtime some people just have that one thing uh but uh, what now what what led you to this column heidi what was the what was what was on the mind when you wrote it
10: well i like i said i am i'm a late night I'm really good at starving myself all day and then just I can't take it anymore and I just go for cheese and chips and, and ice cream so I wanted to know what was what was driving that so I spoke to Dr. David Ernest and what was super interesting about him he's at Texas A&M Health Science Center and he studies body clocks But like, yeah. he had this great thought which I never really thought of which is that you know, we're working these ridiculous hours, right? All of us are on this 24-hour day work schedule. And so we skip meals. Now, someone like me, I'm just trying to keep my weight in check. So I'm skipping meals. But then, you know, come the end of the day, we need a little bit of energy. And so what that snacking, he says that late-night snacking isn't even really snacking. It's meal replacement for so many people. So I was curious about that. I thought that was really interesting.
0: You know, in the piece, you wrote, quote, but then after 11 p.m. or midnight, you're hungry. Dr. Ernest said. So what you're doing is not really snacking. You're replacing a normal meal with something quick and easy to consume. So this is the this is the post-dinner dinner, is basically what you're saying. Yeah,
10: right, exactly. And if, especially if your day is stretching on past, you know, 17 hours or so, you know, you kind of need that fourth meal or you skipped a meal and so you're just super hungry. And so, you know, it is sort of it's either an extra meal because you've got to get more energy or it's, the meal you skipped because you were so busy during lunch that you didn't have it. You had, and, and you're not going to cook a healthful meal late at night, right? So you're yep. going to eat whatever's readily available and marketing companies are very good at enticing us with packaging and delicious good and plenty.
0: And then there's always, of course, that you're not hungry at all and it's 10.30 at night and you can't go to sleep and you want to catch up with your favorite AMC series. So you go downstairs and you open up the fridge and you get everything out of there and you just keep eating until you fall asleep, which is occasionally (laughs) what I do. Isn't that the The best? best?
10: I can eat a whole pound of cheese. Standing up at the counter. At, well, at 11 o'clock. we, we really terrible. cannot get
0: together. I think uh, th- th- it wouldn't end well. We'd both be in a sugar coma, <laughs> and the cops would have to haul us off in body bags. Heidi, so it sounds to me like you were wondering whether other people had this weird habit that you had. That's what it sounds like it was going on there.
10: Yes, I think that was the impetus for this week. I we'll think see how so. Next week goes.
0: I think so too. But so yeah, why? Do- so
10: what's interesting is that 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 craving for you know high-protein, high-fat food late at night, it's actually it's, it's fine to eat, you know, not great, but it's fine to eat that stuff during the day, but it's worse for you at night.
0: So let's get to that, though. That wh- What's the time? I mean, we're now turning this from a fun thing into a health thing, which we hope we're not scaring the <laughs> listeners, okay, because we don't want to talk about health too often, um, and this isn't a health segment, but why does eating certain foods at certain times of the day produce different results? In other words, why should we be eating some things earlier and some things Later And why maybe we shouldn't eat anything later.
10: Well, so, you know, so if you're a night owl and you're trying to push through, you know, you want some high energy food and your body, your body will take it and and it'll run with it. It really your body, you know, it's on a clock. Right. So so it wants to wake up in the morning, be filled with like all kinds of yummy, heavy foods and push you through the day. But at night it wants to start winding down and we'll wire it that way for millennia, right? Or hundreds of thousands of years. So, so then if you, if you eat that stuff late at night, well then you're jolting your body back up to life, right? So you're, you're supposed to be winding down, but instead you're like, no, I'm going to eat that bag of delicious salt and vinegar chips. And now your body's like, oh, right. It's time to wake up. So. Then you're alert and your body, all the stuff goes into, your metabolism goes into action. All the stuff happens internally. And, um, and it's just not good for your body clock. You're totally messing with yourself.
0: Yep. Yep. And by the way, it says here that maybe later at night, you might want to think about eating things like cherries or bananas or a pineapple, and I can only tell you this doesn't work for me because what I do is I get, the, I get that two-pound bag of Bing cherries and I wipe them out, and right. then I'm on a raging sugar high at like two in the morning. But, you know, moder- I guess moderation is the key to everything, Heidi. What's your broad takeaway from researching bedtime snacking? What's the relationship between how we eat and how we sleep?
10: Well, you know, you, sh- you should stop eating you know about eight o'clock but what i thought was super interesting was that what you eat like 12 hours before has an impact on what you're what happens to you later on so this this doctor i think this is pretty fun he said if you eat something high in omega-3s like salmon for example um at say at lunch eat that at lunch and then at night you go for your mad men binge fest tub of ben and jerry's yep. you might be okay you might be canceling out the bad fat protein stuff that's in all the ice cream right and instead it's all going to be okay because we eat that salmon at lunch only well, if you indulge occasionally you <laughs> can't live your life this way every day
0: yep well heidi we always appreciate what you write at the wall street journal And which foods make the best bedtime snack? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to our website. Better still, go to the Wall Street Journal and catch the article. Thanks so much for joining us, Heidi. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this. (laughs) (laughs) And we continue with Our American Stories. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of a father from Austin, Texas, named Jeff Sandifer.
2: Our two boys were transitioning from Montessori where they had great freedom. Maria Montessori was an original pioneer who believed that children could do more than we ever imagined. And so she set up a system that was more real world, gave children freedom with limits and responsibility, and treated them more like special beings with great potential than wards of the state. It's very different than sitting in a classroom and having a teacher talk at you. Montessorians tend to be in the classroom doing something that matters. So they've been in that environment, but it's time to move them into traditional school. So I go to see the very best teacher at the very best school, where our daughter went for middle school, and I said, when should we transition the boys to traditional school? And he just snapped and said, once they've had the freedom like that, they won't like being chained to a desk for eight hours a day. And so without even thinking, I just reacted and I said, well, I don't blame them. And this is a very tall man. I, I won't out who it was, but you know, very well respected. And he stood there for the longest time looking at the ground. He didn't say anything. And I thought, well, gosh, I've offended him. And then he looked up and he had tears in his eyes and he said very quietly, I don't blame him either. And he shook his head. And so I went home that day and I told Laura, I know what kind of teacher he is. I got the message. We're either gonna homeschool or we're gonna start a school because our boys aren't going to traditional school. We're not gonna do that. They're not gonna be chained to a desk. So we started with seven young people in a small rented house, two of them being our children. And that was the start of Acton Academy.
11: An academy guided by four principles. The
2: questions that students will ask, who am I? What is it that I can do and what must I master? Because I want to be really good at something. Who will affirm me and hold me accountable? Got to have a community and people to hold me accountable. And then the third one, how do I prove what I can do? It could be a credential that has value, or it could be a project I've done, or it could be a portfolio, but I want to have proof. And so our four metaphors were, who am I, the hero's journey, the belief that every child is put on this earth, to find a calling that will change the world. The hero's journey story, of course, is, I think, embedded deep inside our souls. It's a reason Star Wars works. It's a reason The Lion King works. It's that longing in human beings to go out and do something that matters. And then, of course, while the hero's in search of the grail, the lesson always is, it's not whether they find the grail or not, it's how the hero changes in the process. So it's this idea of, through challenge and struggle, We find out more about ourselves and our gifts, and in that struggle, along with fellow travelers and people you're walking with, you develop deep relationships and a community. And so I just think the Hero's Journey story is as old as time, and I think what makes our place unusual, if not unique, is everybody there believes every person there is going to change the world when you talk about changing the world people often uh, mistake it for saying well, you have to be prime minister or president or the head of Google and so we make it very clear early that you could be someone running a uh, small dry cleaners with three employees and have a thousand people show up at your funeral because every day you treated customers and employees with respect and did things in the community and you absolutely changed the world in a profound way The What skills do I need to learn and what do I need to master? That's the beauty of the internet and Khan Academy.
11: If you haven't used it yet, Khan Academy is a pretty cool place that lives on the internet. It enables you to learn just about anything at your own pace and from the best people in their fields like Sal Khan for free. Almost 12 million people do just this monthly, including innovative schools like Acton Academy.
2: We've never taught a minute of math, or reading, or writing, or anything. And no adult has ever taught anything in the acting studios, ever. Ever. Now, Sal Khan has come in remotely, but no adult in authority, I should say, has ever taught. You go find your own answers. People can move on their own pace in certain things when you can. I can watch it 23 times if I have to. So it's putting someone like Sal Khan on demand, repeatedly, over and over again, that's better than Mr. Coonrod, rest his soul who taught me algebra because i i could only listen to him lecture once and we all had to be on the same page he may not be the best teacher and in fact he may be the best teacher for you but i don't like his voice well okay well then we'll go find someone so there are lots of other great experts out there There they're terrific role models and the other part is you having choices and having to take responsibility for your learning if you'll do that you can learn anything And so this requires you to do that and you can't blame me for not teaching you well or not inspiring you. It doesn't become personal. The personal thing is you set your goals and you reach them. There's a famous kind of uh, story that this teacher stood up at one meeting and said, we've taught the children, we've taught the children, they just haven't learned anything. Blaming the children. And then a voice from the back of the room said, how do you define the verb teach in that last sentence? And so, People can learn things with no teacher. Now, do I want a role model? Do I want an expert? Absolutely, adults have a role, but you don't have to teach me in this world. I can learn, and someone can stand up and teach and pontificate and talk, and the people in the room learn nothing. So we really are centered around learning, learning driven by the people who are gonna become heroes, but the one thing we don't have is a lot of adult authority. Our students write beautifully. If you start out lecturing somebody about grammar, they will hate to write. If you just get them loving to write, you can clean up the grammar quickly. If you wanna fix grammar, grammar's easy. You, once you learn the rules, everybody breaks them anyway on purpose. I mean, Bill Buckley used to always you know, say, I'll put my commas anywhere I damn well want to. But they learn to write beautifully. The reason is they like to critique each other. So no adult grades anything at our school. The young people grade everything. We try to remove the adults from authority, or let's say from dictatorial authority, and put them in their proper role as maybe game makers. So if I invite you to play tennis, we're gonna agree to a set of rules, it's not anarchy. Uh, we're gonna have, decide what the trophy might look like, and we're gonna engage in a tennis game. So we create games, invite people into play. So if I give you a challenge you think matters for your why, three or four or one recipe, or process or series of steps, you can call it our algorithm, in order to how to make that happen. And let's throw in some squads and people to work with. That's a great way to learn. And at the end of it, you can actually do something. For example, right now we're doing a cooking and chemistry quest. We're learning deep lessons about chemistry. At the same time, they're learning how to cook. At the end of all that, there'll be a public exhibition, as there always is, and we'll recreate the TV show Chopped. Have you ever seen it, so when, when you have a certain number of ingredients a certain amount of time, the teams will be cooking things for the audience, but they'll have a limited time and money for ingredients. The only way they can earn more is by getting on stage, pulling a question out of the hat about chemistry, answering it correctly, and relating it to what they're cooking at the moment. So to be able to do that, you have to have very deep knowledge of chemistry, not memorized formulas that would buy your team a little more time and a few more ingredients as you compete to learn how to cook. And so anyway that whole idea of why am I here and then what skills do I need to learn, cooking's probably a pretty important one, but then what am I gonna master? I mean everyone's got a gift what is your gift because great gifts when you master them bring opportunities to you and so as you become better at something in a domain as you have a deliberate practice where you work hard, whether it's karate or running or cooking, to be good at something, great opportunities come to you. Now, that's all easy to say it's hard to do. That's why you need people to hold you accountable, to affirm and celebrate you. And this is where, you know, traditional teachers and the great ones, you you probably remember two teachers from your lifetime, or three or four that really mattered. If you think hard enough about it, It probably wasn't that they taught you algebra. Mr. Coonrod taught me algebra. He was a coach. Now, he was a decent algebra teacher, and I learned algebra, but what really mattered was Mr. Coonrod believed in me. He affirmed me. And so we remember great teachers because they affirm, but anyone can affirm you. They don't have to know algebra.
0: They have to know you. And my goodness not a lot of adult authority around that dictatorial adult authority and school centered around learning sign me up I want a do over on all of my public education because I was chained to the desk and I felt like it and that was back in the 1970s I can't imagine what young kids are feeling like today with all this technology well I know I have a 14 year old and she feels chained to a desk and she's bored out of her mind at least half the day every day and we've got good public schools And I love the four questions that Jeff asked, because I think they're just so important. Who am I? What is it I can do? And what must I master? By the way, that's where real self-esteem will come from. Mastery of something, being good at something. Three, who will hold me accountable? I don't think there's a lot of that happening many places with young people in this country. And last, how do I prove what I can do? And it's not how I feel, right? Right. How do I prove what I can do? How can I measure it? When we come back, more with Jeff Sandefur's story, and by the way, his bride, Laura, and the story of Acton Academy, here on Our American Stories. with Our American Stories and Jeff Santafer's story of being unsatisfied with the current education system and he and his wife starting their own school called the Acton Academy.
2: America became the strongest, most powerful, fairest country on the face of the earth before we ever had an organized school system. We had one-room schoolhouses where you learned basically character education and reading, writing, arithmetic. And in many ways, acting as a return to the multi-age, one-room schoolhouse where you learn the basics in community. Then, back in those days, you would then take an apprenticeship. Now, interestingly, you also would often get seconded out before your apprenticeship age to another family down the street. And, and I don't, here's my guess as to why, it's because no one listens to their parents, but you will listen to your favorite uncle. And so people actually had contracts where you would send your kids go live with another family, and of course the towns and cities were small then, and they would send their kids to you for character education, and then you'd go to one-room schoolhouses, and then about age 13 you get an apprenticeship. You'd learn to master a skill underneath someone who affirmed you and held you accountable, and you learn to trade. Now that made America, because it wasn't until the late 1800s we had any kind of organized school systems. Those were organized around the Prussian model, around basically a military model. They were encouraged by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, not because they were evil robber barons, but because they worried about civil unrest from waves of immigrants coming in. Now, whether that was true or not, they should have been worried, or it was a fear of the other, we don't know. But you were having lots of people come that you wanted to have become factory workers and to have a civil society, and these school systems were a way to train them. Once you understand that the early school systems were to train factory workers, long rows of industrial lockers, bells ringing every 45 minutes, the command, listen to me, look up here, kind of rote memorization and routine, all makes sense. So it wasn't an evil, stupid system. It was a way to equip people for the jobs and lives that they were going to at least live at the turn of the 19th century when you had massive industrialization going on in the Industrial Revolution. Again, I'm not trying to cast aspersion on the Rockefellers, but if you're running a factory, you want people in those days particularly to do what you're asking them to do routinely over and over and over again. You don't have robots with AI to, to go pick things off of shelves or to make cars or to make what you're making. So they wanted people who would do what they wanted. So we have a long discussion about that and whether it worked, but, but it doesn't make sense today. When you look out on the world, FedEx usually beats the post office. And I think in this case, there's people working very hard inside a bureaucratic institution, but Hayek had it right that you want to have as few bureaucracies as necessary reserved for those things that bureaucracies serve well. Like the legal system, the military, I mean, you probably need a bureaucracy for a lot of that. You don't want people paying for their own private or sergeant. But in most things, the market works better acton academy students starting in middle school one of the badges you have to earn to go to Launchpad.
11: badges is acton's term for credentialing and launchpad is their term for high school
2: you don't have to earn the badge you, you can choose whatever you want but you won't ever go to our launch pad without the apprenticeship badge so you have to start at your first year of middle school doing apprenticeships you choose the apprenticeship you have to go get the apprenticeship we don't bring people into you You have to deliver on your promises and get a rating. So I can write an email that says, Alex, you're my hero because, and genuinely mean it, because you're the person I want to become. Will you give me five minutes for a phone call to explain our apprenticeship program? Didn't ask you for a job, I asked you for five minutes. In the phone call, I'm only taking five minutes, I'm gonna explain how it works and ask if I can come see you in person. Then I'm gonna go in person and I'm gonna say, Alex, you've heard about the program. I've told you, I'm gonna promise you, I'm gonna show up early, I'm gonna work late, I'm gonna do what I say I'm gonna do, and I will pass this on. Will you give me a chance, just one day? Will you give me one chance to prove myself? Now, how many people say no to a 13 year old who genuinely does that? Almost zero. When someone writes and they sincerely say, I wanna become you, you're my hero because, and they know all about you, and I'll show up early and work late and do whatever you ask me, who's not gonna say yes to that? If, it's, if the person's serious about it, that's the kind of email you wait to, to hear. I remember one story, we had this one young person, she was 14 at the time, so she'd had a couple of apprenticeships and she wanted to be a lawyer. So she went and pitched this law firm and the lady you know, emailed us, we normally don't get involved, but she emailed us and said, look, I, you know, we're a law firm, we're not about to, to, to give her any kind of apprenticeship and we certainly wouldn't pay her and we're not, you know, but, but it's the most amazing letter I've ever seen. She's incredible. She's already taken a law course from UPenn online and she's read all these books about the law and she's read Bastiat and she, So I'm at least going to meet her, but I just wanted you to know because we're worried about the legal side of whether we can even meet her. We said, okay, well, her parents have already signed off as part of our process. You can meet her. The lady calls us and said, okay, I'm going to give her an apprenticeship. I know I said I wouldn't, and I know she's only 14, but I got it. But I can't pay her. I said, look, that's up to you. We don't get involved in that. Okay. After about her first week, you know, okay, I just wanted to email and let you know we are gonna start paying her, but she will never get a job offer here. Well, six weeks later, at the end of the apprenticeship, she had a job offer at 14 to work for the law firm. She'd been to see clients, she'd been to court, and she was exceptional, she was incredible. And since it's gone on to college, and gotten all these scholarships, we didn't make her, she made herself decided the law wasn't her thing right after this apprenticeship. But that story of going out and doing something I think I care about goes on a hundred times a year at acton I was with one of our young people, this was about six months ago, and I said, hey, uh, Derek, uh, what have you been doing lately? Because I, I just tracked up a conversation walking across the campus. He goes, well, I got an apprenticeship. And I said, cool, who are you working for? And he said, Karl Rove.
11: President George W. Bush's political strategist. I said,
2: you're working with Carl Rove? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, did your parents know Carl Rove? And he goes, no, no, I just wrote him the email we're supposed to, and I pitched him, I'm helping him write his new book, and it's called, like, the seven most important decisions a president's made. He goes, so I'm helping him research it. And I said, so because you like politics and writing, you convinced Carl Rove to hire you? And he goes, yeah. I mean, just, to him, that was just like, he didn't even, you know, I was like, do you know who Carl Rove is?
11: I was wondering, when do they do all these apprenticeships given the school day?
2: Well, so it's interesting, so our campus doesn't take attendance and, you know, you, you, as long as you're doing your badges and your parents say it's okay, you can come and go a lot, particularly in high school. You, you can be off doing something most of the time if you want to. But We never know about it until the badge is submitted. And by the way, they, these employers hold them to the contract. You do have to show you know, if you, if you show up late or you don't, we hear about it. And there's a whole rating system that the young person knows it's going to be publicly rated at the end and everyone's going to see whether they held up, because that reflects on Acton. By the time they're out of high school, which we call Launchpad, they probably had seven apprenticeships with reference letters. So you think a college looks at those? There's your proof of what I can do.
0: And my goodness, where is there an Acton Academy nearby is what you're thinking, right? And again, we are not slamming public school teachers, public schools, I think what Jeff said, I think many public school teachers are nodding in agreement with. More flexibility, more power and control over their classrooms. Look, my dad was a school teacher his whole life, and a superintendent of schools in a public school, and he was talking about this then, and he was begging and urging for new ways to think about how to think about educating kids. Because again, it was, Jeff is dead right, the industrial model had its place, and it had its time. We were training masses, armies of, of factory workers. And it made sense the way we did things. But the way we're doing things now, still doing them mostly the same, makes no sense. And my goodness, six, seven internships. Some kids working their way into law firms and getting paid at the age of 14 to do work. You can't make this stuff up, Folks. And it's what happens when you don't infantilize children and treat them as young agents of change for their own lives and their own growth. When we come back, we continue with Jeff Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy, along with his bride, Laura. We continue with Our American Stories and we return to Jeff Sandifer and the final portion of this remarkable story on his school, the Acton Academy.
2: Education has a very bad habit of talking about price and cost as if they were the same thing, which they are if you never make any money, right? And we're a not-for-profit. That doesn't mean we can't generate surplus. So everything we do in a not-for-profit world, we hope generates surplus doesn't come back to us. We don't take any money of it. We can reinvest it in something else. So with that distinction, our tuition is still $10,000 or $11,000 a year. And Laura keeps saying, well, our costs are down below $4,000. Why don't we just charge everyone $4,000? And of course, if our parents are listening to this, big one, that'd be great. I'm like, look, I paid $30,000 for our daughter to go to an inferior school, so everyone's getting a bargain. I wish we'd start out pricing it at twenty. dollars We can always offer people scholarships but why wouldn't I price what the market will bear? So, Acton Academies range in price.
11: Oh yeah, there's more than one of these Acton Academies out there, as you're soon to hear about.
2: From about $3,000 a year in tuition, to last I checked about $30,000. Our pro forma cost now, we can get to easily $4,000. We're pretty sure with a really nice campus, we can get down to $2,500 a year. If you factor in the apprenticeship income that middle schoolers and high schoolers can earn, and you assume that's an offset to tuition, we don't take that money, but a family could use that, we can get the cost pretty close to zero. Pretty close to zero.
11: For some context on this, elite private schools cost between twenty dollars to $50,000 per year. D.C. public schools spend $28,000 per child and the nationwide average for public schools is almost $12,000.
2: Remember, this started out with seven young people. We weren't even we wouldn't even have dreamed we really would have a full elementary studio, much less a middle school and a high school. The idea that there would be another acting academy would have never occurred to us and was a pure accident. Talk about getting lucky. So this is, you know, you're trying experiments and good things are happening. Then we had two, then we had three, and then we said, you know, maybe if we had 10, we're learning so much more from the other actins. They're already ahead of us, and so we're, we're practicing positive deviance. We're observing the things that work and sharing them and adopting them. Maybe we should have 10. And then we started to try to go from three to six or eight. Suddenly things exploded. Uh, now we're, it's hard for me to keep count because it changes quickly, where it's something around 150 all sharing ideas every single day. There's an owner's forum where as we've been sitting here, I've probably gotten three ideas from around the world that someone's tried, and we all adapt them. It's amazing how much acting academies look like each other, but if you come back six months later, how different they are. Because everyone's adopting new best practices on the fly. So the model's
11: always changing. And this isn't the only feedback loop.
2: There are feedback loops everywhere, but probably the most important one for us is we make a series of promises to our parents. Every in Academy makes the same promises. Your child will be on a hero's journey, very simple but fundamental belief system promises. And then we ask every parent and every child, every week, how are we doing? What's our net promoter score? Would you recommend this place to a trusted friend? One to ten scale and we live or die based on those ratings, and all the ratings and all the comments are anonymous but published. And you know, just like the internet, you get some cranky people, you get some people who are probably poorly selected customers, and eventually, you know, will select out of the system, so it's painful when 90% of your customers are happy and 10% aren't, but we have very clear feedback, and it's shared in the community, and every Acton Academy in the world lives by that same standard. You know, you talk about accreditation, which is a whole, you know, another topic of how nonsensical it is. Well, we have the best accreditation in the world. We publicly publish our customer satisfaction ratings. And you can go look them up and you can actually see what the customers are saying. That's our ultimate quality control.
11: I asked Jeff, does any other school in the world do this? To have 100% of your customers rating you. And posting it for everyone to see. I've never heard of this before.
2: I don't know. Um, I will say that we've had several hundred people come and ask us for tours. School officials and educators. Uh, we absolutely, you know, want to serve people, but remember, we only have a couple adults on campus, and they're, you know, they're, for safety and everything else, they're busy, and so we don't have a big staff to tour people around. So we, we can't do that. What I do say every time I'm asked is, we would love to have you and your faculty come. Be delighted. However, nothing we do will work without this feedback loop. So anything we can share with you won't work. As soon as you have surveyed your community for six months, every week, and published the results of their satisfaction, we will give you every single thing we have. All of it. We'll copy the database and hand it to you. Got to do it first. How many tours have we given? Zero. Zero. So I don't know if anyone else is doing it. I can tell you it's a very humane way that we don't give a lot of tours. And so the reason we can expand so fast is if you become an acting owner, you put your own children in the school, and you agree to make promises and be held accountable, what are the odds you're going to build a really bad school? (laughs) Not much. Juan Bonifasi, my wonderful former student who runs African Academy Guatemala, said, we just did this terrific quest. And I said, yeah. you know, our quests are often 100 pages long, they're so hard for us to write, and he set up these games. He goes, oh, ours took like five minutes. Said, five minutes? He goes, yeah. We put, uh, we took duct tape, and we put a little three foot by three foot box on the floor. We duct taped out a box on the floor like we could stand in. And we said, in six weeks, you will be standing in this square for no more than 10 minutes and no less than eight. You will pick a hero, you will deliver a speech in your hero's voice that you write yourself. So let's imagine Churchill, 1941, standing on a specific street corner in London, and you're gonna get, now, if you speak less than eight minutes, you're just gonna stand there. If you speak more than 10 minutes, The hook's coming out at 10 minutes, so you've got 8 to 10 minutes. Good luck. That's all. This is middle school. That's all the instruction they gave them. So, you know, the the six weeks came. There's no help. Can you learn how to give a speech when you look at stuff on the Internet? Sure. There's there's a a website called Six Minutes to Speaking or something. So they brought back all these great resources for how to learn to give a speech. They worked hard and videoed their speeches and learned, and they gave these amazing speeches to a room full of 100 people. Now, the flip side of that, we had one young man that came in. He was new to the high school. He wore a hoodie. He looked like, you know, he might be one of those people you would be worried about at your school for violence. He wasn't that way, but it looked like that. He signed up for this. He stood up in front of the room and he froze, and he had to stand there for eight minutes without saying anything. Now you just think about how long eight minutes is. We couldn't rescue him, we had to let it happen. He was so brave that he asked for a chance to do it again to a smaller group a week later. So people came to see it the second time, he froze the second time. He's now got this great job in high tech, he's graduated from acting, but he told me about a year ago that the most important decision he ever made in his life was after that second time. He said, I'm either gonna leave here or I'm gonna give that speech. And he went back and worked on it and he came back a third time. And he got up and he wasn't you know, terrific, but he stood there for eight minutes and he gave his talk. And he said, that moment changed my life. That's the moment I look back to that changed my life forever. And I'll end on this because I think Sager's story and that simple having to actually do something for real, that's a skill that's gonna matter in your life, Reminds me of the last time we had a new orientation meeting for new owners last month and we normally have parents But one parent was a parent educator who'd been in education for years and wanted to build an act in for his family I said what have you learned from being here because you wanted to come and see if it was for real and if you could do it And he said it's been one of the most sobering experiences of my life It's as if all my life I had studied Tigers in a zoo and I thought I knew Tigers And now I've seen a tiger in the wild and I've seen how magnificent the creatures are and I realize that I know nothing. So what we're all about is having the tigers in the wild in the kind of civil society that they should be living in as human beings. And when you do that, it is absolutely extraordinary what young people do. They are capable of far more than you have ever imagined. They dumb themselves down for adults they submit to arbitrary authority of forced to, but then they are living like tigers in a cage. And tigers were not meant to be raised in cages. And
0: what a story. And again, that's Jeff Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy, along with his bride, Laura. And you can learn more at actonacademy.org. And he's not trying to like grow more schools. He doesn't have a growth plan. They're just growing because we were listening to a man with deep convictions about how kids can be educated in the 21st century and how families can be agents for change on the education front. And that's what's happening all over this country. I mean, it was remarkable to hear him talk about how they could get the cost down to under 4000 and down to even 2500 And then if the young person is interning, bring the cost of education to zero while teaching young people how to be young adults. Of character and substance going and knocking on a door and asking for an internship really remarkable and I loved hearing the story about that young man who had to just perform that speech for eight minutes and him saying that the most important decision he ever made in his life was coming back that third time and giving his speech and my goodness Tigers are not meant to be raised in cages Jeff is right Jeff Sandifer's story his bride's story Laura here